Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, unintended consequences for a key acquisition initiative and the cyber impact coming for every government leader. It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Nick Girton will be the next acquisition leader for the Navy if the Senate confirms him. He's the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation at DOD now. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, Test and Evaluation from 2011 to 2016. The Thrift Savings Plan could get an Inspector General if a new bill becomes law. D.C. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton says constituents contact her office often about problems with the TSP's new record-keeping system. Norton says her Her bill is because the Thrift Savings Plan needs, quote, new accountability mechanisms. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Neuberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's next Thursday, September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. General Services Administration is analyzing several new initiatives that will impact the industry community. One of them could make it more expensive for companies to sell to the government. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Larry, this has to do with plastics packaging, single-use plastics, and it doesn't sound on the, off the top of my head like it would be that big of a deal. Why is, could it potentially turn out to be a big deal? Francis, I think this could be a big deal because GSA is buying commercially available items. And our surveys showed that there is no standard commercial industry standard for handling single-use plastics and what you do with them in terms of getting them out of the supply chain. There might be some initiatives here and there, but if GSA comes in and attempts to disrupt the commercial supply chain, it's going to find that The prices on its contracts are going to go up and there's going to be a significant negative impact, especially to small businesses that are usually resellers who are taking packaging and the product that they get from their supplier and uh, reselling it to government agencies. So if uh, while we all want to be mindful of the environment and, and we all do want to be mindful of the environment, we also need to understand that there's a significant economic impact of blazing a new trail and that could hurt some of the other GSA initiatives, particularly their desire to do more business with small businesses. You write, if the small business is the contractor, it's the entity that would be required to open all boxes, strip out banned items, pay for, acquire, and use substitute items, and then reship. That doesn't sound like that is a good business element, you know, part of a good business equation for a small business? Well, it's it's not, Francis. And it's something that, frankly, many small businesses probably don't have the capability to do. Um, others that would take on the capability, uh, they would have to have those extra costs passed along to their government customers because no one else is currently really requiring them to do it. One of the things I really like GSA to do was take a look at what commercial standards are uh, in this area, what what commercial standards are being developed. You know, there's actually some precedent for this. When GSA previously has gone out to 
look at things like fire testing or durability testing. Uh, it's used industry standards and adopted those so that the companies that have to meet, say, California flammability testing standards, uh, they already have that built in for when they have to do business with GSA. Uh, and so it's nice. Uh, there's no uh, additional cost. Everybody understands that this is the established standard and the industry practice. And GSA just kind of piggybacks along with that. And everybody gets the benefit of it without disrupting the supply chain. Where should this live if not at GSA? If, 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 if GSA shouldn't decide this unilaterally for its own vehicles, where should this come from to make it government-wide? And that's kind of one of the points that I'm mentioning, Francis, when I write about this, is that uh, this really ought to be a government-wide initiative. GSA is looking at this as potentially an amendment to the GSA acquisition manual, uh, which would cover, again, only GSA contracts. Uh, that would put the agency, again, at a competitive disadvantage potentially even with other federal agency contracts, NASA, DOD, uh, other uh, IDIQ contracts that people sell through. So I really think this ought to be a government-wide initiative. Uh, we ought to open up a FAR case if this is something that the administration is seriously contemplating. Uh, that provides even a broader opportunity for more comment. Uh, you open it up to the universe of all contractors, not just GSA contractors. Uh, you give it some visibility uh, and you really understand what the pros and cons of this type of an approach are at this point in time, whether it's better to proceed now or whether it's better to have industry uh, tell you, look, uh, in a couple of years, we're going to have this. And then that's something that everybody might want to proceed with. All right. Um, I also want to call uh, your attention to your week ahead newsletter and the top three do's and don'ts based on email inquiries that I just find fascinating, Larry. The first one, and, and you point out the Dave Barry reference, I'm not making this up. I'm, I, I'm, I've never been a contractor. I've never been a, uh, in, in the role that you are. And some of this stuff I even know. So I'm, it, this, this makes me laugh. Don't tell a customer an item is on a contract if it isn't. Why would somebody do that? Uh, Francis, you find this happening a lot at fiscal year end. People are eager to get the deal done. Uh, customer asks, hey, is this item on contract? And the salesperson's response is, oh, sure it is. It's absolutely on contract. And then they go back to the contract shop and say, hey, I need this on contract in the next three days. <laughs> uh, that's almost impossible to do. You're over-promising. Uh, you're setting yourself up to fail and you're setting your customer up to be very frustrated. These are things that experienced companies know not to do. And yet we see them still happening all the time. Everybody wants to get business, but you have to remember, Francis, there comes a time after the end of the fiscal year and your company still wants to have good relationships and a good reputation it's not really worth damaging those right now just to tell uh, somebody that you can get some, get them a solution in a way that you can't get it to them. Number two is don't sell through companies you've never heard of. I mean, I'm sorry, that's just a duh to me. It is, and it's something that I've talked about before. And yet, Francis, I'm writing about it because just a few days before I wrote this, I had a client of mine that had somebody call them up and say, hey, 
we're bidding your items. In this case, it was for a, a large state contract. The company in question had never heard of the firm that was bidding their items. They didn't know who they were. And the company said, hey, you need to make us uh, an approved dealer for you so that when we win this bid, we can sell your stuff. And the company, my client called up and said, hey, what about this? And I said, hey, look, I think you got to go a little bit more slowly here. You don't know who this company is. You don't know whether or not they're on somebody's uh, ethics or suspended list. You don't know uh, if they're actually a real company. Uh, most companies, Francis, need to and do have good controls over who uh, can resell for them. Uh, again, it comes down to reputation. You don't want to be guilty by association, by connecting yourself with a company that you haven't had time to vet. Uh, you've got authorized distribution channels. You should stick to those. Uh, if the state agency or federal agency calls you up, you can say, hey, I don't know who these people are, but let me show you how I can get this product to you through a legitimate channel. Uh, that's the better move. And the third one is one that you've only been telling me for the entire 15 years that we've known each other, Larry. Don't try now for that introductory meeting. Come on, it's the fourth quarter, people. It is the fourth quarter, and yet I've had to have this discussion with a couple of clients lately, and I get the fact that people are eager to develop business. We're all in business development at some time, Francis, but this is not the time to try and have that introductory discussion with a new uh, client, a new target. Uh, they're busy trying to get things out the door. Uh, I've had to go back and tell a couple of companies that, look, let's wait till October or even November really to have these discussions uh, when people probably as a general rule do have more time. And in my experience, most federal customers actually do want to hear about a new offering, particularly if it's something they can really leverage but uh, you have to understand when the time is for that, and that time is not now. If you're an existing contractor, this is your time to run down leads and relationships you already have and develop those new ones in the fall. Larry Allen, thanks very much. Great to talk to you as always, my friend. Francis, thank you very much. You can read more about the new packaging initiative in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices till September 30th. We'll announce the 2022 winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Agency leaders say it could take up to three years to get all the tools they need to execute the Biden administration's vision for zero trust. The results from a recent FedScoop survey show one reason's budget. Stephen Hernandez is the chief information security officer at the Education Department. He tells FedScoop's Wyatt Cash zero trust won't just impact technology leaders in government. Whether you're in the CIO shop or in the program area, this is going to impact all of us if it hasn't already. Uh, at the Department of Education, where we're focused right now is in a, a couple big areas. One, making sure we already leverage investments that are square in the zero trust space. Things like identity, credentials, access management, or ICAM. These are things that we're, we've been doing for years, doing well. And now as we move towards modernization and zero trust, we want to make sure that 
that we're taking everything that we've got that we can leverage and then finding those small gaps and making sure we're building them out. Additionally, we're looking at a lot of our, what we call control fabric, or some folks call this the policy enforcement points. What do we already have on the books in terms of our maybe software defined networking, maybe our existing data lakes around security information and event management or seams? Where do we have those existing investments we need to align? And as we look forward, we're really looking at that next iterative step. For us, that's a lot of work around security orchestration, automation, and response. So bringing more automation and more agile thinking to how we're working with security, both proactively and reactively. Um, and then also really around the realm of, for us, what we call Secure Access Service Edge, or SASE. It's always fun to say. Uh, and SASE is about modernizing the idea of a hardware or a physical perimeter-based um, type of approach into more of a cloud-based agile approach as we monitor the interactions between our organization and untrusted networks like the open internet. Well, as you know, uh, so many departments and agencies face a lot of silo issues. Talk to us a little bit about how the Department of Education is planning to implement zero trust principles across multiple networks or domains or functional silos. It, that is a question near and dear to my heart. Um, when we look at the department, we hold a third of the nation's personally identifiable information. We have $1.7 trillion accounts receivable. We have an incredible education mission about making sure education is available to anybody who's seeking it. And what that boils down to is a lot of partnerships. Uh, just in like federal student aid, we have over 6,000 partners that we work with to facilitate, administer, and execute this program. Um, when we look at the cloud service providers and vendors we, we work with. We have uh, almost 40 of the major cloud service providers in our environment, whether it's software as a service, all the way down through infrastructure. And so for us, the silos become really, in many ways, contractual silos. Do we have a contract that isn't working for us in terms of that bi-directional security and risk conversation? And in some cases, a program or a relationship type of silo where federal student aid's been around for decades now, from a program perspective with these 6,000 partners, are we having the right conversations with them about increasing security, getting risk visibility back and forth to make their program stronger and protect our interest in protecting citizens and students? Well, that sounds like a massive uh, array of partners to have to contend with. Um, really appreciate the scope of that for you. Um, next, let me ask, you know, federal agencies, have a lot of additional compliance requirements as they approach cybersecurity uh, that's codified by law. What concerns do you have about federal zero trust adoption to ensure agencies are actually able to achieve comprehensive versus just a sort of check the box security protection method? Uh, fantastic question. And the good news is inherent in how zero trust architecture is designed, it's going to be exceptionally hard to check the box and say, yeah, I'm doing it. Uh, because things like enterprise-wide log management, where we're bringing in logs from all systems into one centralized function, so we can review it, not just historically, but proactively. These are things where it's like, you're either doing it or you're not. And um, it's going to be very hard to say, well, I've got a third of the portfolio doing it. And so I, I'm, I'm going to try to check that box. 
that's not what the OMB memos say, and that's that's not what the architecture says. So we're starting off with the right blueprint to make sure this isn't a compliance exercise, but we're really managing risk. The other part is that we have to be willing to talk about sharing. And that's not just the threat information, which is the first part of the executive order on cybersecurity, but it's throughout the executive order. And the M memos around zero trust talks about just how vital sharing information between systems, between programs, between organizations is going to be. And if we're not thinking about how we're going to construct those relationships now, they are going to be an impediment later. And so I think that's an important area that we should uh, be at the forefront of our minds as well. Stephen Hernandez, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Education Department with my Scoop News Group colleague, Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.